and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast. Two old blokes mostly just chatting about car stuff on the internet. It's a new concept for the internet, I know. I thought we'd give it a try, see how we get on. No one else is doing it. No. Absolutely nobody else in the history of the internet is talking about cars using the internet. No. So I feel we're we're breaking new ground. We're blazing new trails. Um, but anyway, welcome to the latest the latest <laughs> Automovie podcast. Um, we've been away for a while, but we're back. And we back. my God, there's been so many things happening since we were last podding that uh, I think we should probably through a load of stuff but first in the show notes is the new fast and furious trailer and i'm already laughing even before we've dug into this because it is quite possibly the most ridiculous trailer i have ever seen in my (laughs) entire life have you seen it i have have you noticed first of all how they've gone down the apple route and it's now fast x they're not going yes they have (laughs) No, it's Fast X. So it's going to be Fast X um, Leopard, Fast X Maverick. <laughs> oh no, that's too geeky. That's too. That's too nerdy. Um, <laughs> Welcome to our world. <laughs> the thing I like about this. The thing I like about this is this is if you search for this on YouTube, you have to make sure you watch it from the right channel because this trailer has been reposted on loads of other people's channels. Mm. Um, but the channel to watch it on is the Fast Saga which is a channel that has 1.77 million subscribers, um, presumably just does fast content. I haven't actually looked at it at all, but this is where the trailer was first posted. And almost more than the ridiculous trailer itself, the comments on the trailer are absolute gold. But let's quickly talk about Fast 10. Uh, This is the 11th film in the Fast Saga, if you count Hobbs and Shaw, which I do because I like it controversial i like hobson shaw it's very silly but i would i would totally see more movies with dwayne johnson and the Stath just constantly riffing on one another and and niggling and being being sort of um frenemies as it were i i i, I love that movie it was totally silly but it has a mclaren 720s doing a car chase and it has an absolutely bonkers finish Ugh, it's yeah it's very silly and there's a there's a moment of sort of like hang on the bad guy's a sort of robot um <laughs> but <laughs> the bad guy is played by lufa <laughs> so it's all okay um yes so fast 10 trailer for some reason fast 10 the villain is now jason momoa aquaman is in it and <laughs> they're doing some magnificent retconning where fast five i think universally hailed as the the high watermark of the franchise during all of that like heist and chase sequence in the last half of Fast Five where they're towing the vault all the way through Rio de Janeiro apparently just off screen was Jason Momoa who is the son of the guy they were robbing and he's now come back for revenge in probably the most daytime soap plot point in a fast saga yet and I thought this saga was pretty soapy when it started it's it's ludicrous I'm, I'm, I'm um, sorry I'm sorry we, we have to... Sorry, let's just go back to this. The idea that just off camera this whole other film is happening, I think, is wonderful and brilliant. It's like, um, you know, when they introduced the Stath and it was... Yes, um, it's, I was thinking of that. It's just like that in Tokyo Drift where the shot you see in Tokyo Drift just very slightly out of frame is supposed to be the Stath on a phone and you know it damn wasn't. <laughs> they just stuck him in there after the fact. It, this is just more of the same. Um, it features 
like everybody. a lot of everybody. There is a big cast here. There's new people coming on. Brie Larson's in it for for some reason, even though I can't <laughs> see where she's going to fit into it. We've got the usual likes of Vin Diesel, Michelle Rodriguez, Ludacris, Tyrese, Jordan uh, Brewster, Helen Sun Mirren Kang. For some reason, Heron Mirren. Well, she's um, Dom's mum. Is she Dom's mum? Uh, yeah, she's. But it's still just weird. <laughs> Like, no, the whole thing is just crazy. Scott Eastwood's back as as ancient little nobody for some reason, even though he's a terrible character. Jack Reach is in it. Alan Richardson's in it for some reason. <laughs> I, I'm saying that all the time, but just none of this makes any sense. The whole trailer makes no sense. It seems to give away an awful lot of plot point and you know big action sequences. There's a point where Dom's charger somehow crashes two helicopters out of the sky. <laughs> Make of that what you will. But as I as I alluded to earlier on, the comments on the trailer are magnificent. There's there's samples that just lots and lots of people saying, I love the part where something, 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 and then Dom says, family. <laughs> so for example, I love the part where Uncle Ben says, with great power comes great responsibility, and Dom says, with great family comes great responsibility. <laughs> oh, it's now memeing, is it? <laughs> it's it's all memes. <laughs> I love the part where Ron tells Harry, your parents are dead, you have no family. And then Dom tells him, you can join our family. <laughs> I love the part where Dom asks Aquaman, will this fit my Honda? And then says, VTech is family. <laughs> oh, if, if I- There are so many of them. And honestly, they're better than the trailer. This movie is going to be... I think possibly too stupid, even for me. Too as stupid, lover of, too furious, too fast. Yes, it's... I think this is going to be too stupid. Am I going to see it? Of course yes. I am. Am I going to enjoy it? I'm not so sure. I think there's too too much stupid here for, for, for anyone to contain. Um, Fast 10 is directed by Louis Leterrier, who is probably best known for doing those Now You See Me movies, amongst others. Um, taking over from Justin Lin, who left the production right at the start when possibly he read the script that he co-wrote and went, hang on a fucking minute, this is ridiculous, and just walked <laughs> off. But there you have it. The new Fast 10 trailer, sorry, Fast X, whatever we want to call it. Uh, it's stupid. And when the movie comes around, of course, you know, we'll be reviewing it. Yep. Um, let's move on to other things. Um, I think we've talked about this in previous podcasts. Netflix's Drive to Survive Season 5 has been out for a while. Um, Chris poses the question, is it still worth it for F1 fans? You've watched this, right? You've watched Drive to Survive Season 5. I have. I binged it. I was always going to watch it. I have watched all of the series of Drive to Survive. I think they have taken on board some of the criticism of years gone by, and they have made it a bit less... You know, stuff used to happen out of order, and you'd have F1 fans going, oh, I think you'll find he actually didn't uh, go out on lap 23 or whatever. It's, it's They've cleaned up a lot of that. I've been wondering for a while what Drive to Survive, the point of it actually is. And I was talking to some friends of mine who got into F1 through Drive to Survive. And they said, basically, it opens up the sport of Formula One. This is not news. The fact that we now have the Miami Grand Prix and the Las Vegas Grand Prix is because of Drive to Survive. It's all of those bits that you and I follow and all of us F1 geeks do on Twitter and Autosport and the race and everything else, because we're into it, they kind of neatly package it all up and go, here you go, here's the story of such and such. Um, And 
they said it's the politics, it's the behind the scenes stuff, it's the people aspects, which is what drew them to drive drive to survive and then to F1. And one thing watching it this year, and I was kind of thinking like, is it still something that I want to watch? Is it still something that I kind of look forward to? And I was a bit on the fence, but I thought, you know, for the sake of the podcast, I shall watch Drive Survive. Oh, the hardship. And there were two things that really stood out this year for me. Three things, actually. One was the Oscar Piastri saga. So that was, he was uh, he was an Alpine reserve driver, and then he was a McLaren driver, and then it went to the contract recognition board. And if you watch it on Drive Survive, it is literally that. It's Alpine announce him, Alonso moves, Alpine announce Piastri. Piastri says, no, I'm going to drive for McLaren. McLaren say, we think we've got a contract. Alpine say, oh, well, we've lost it. We've got someone better than Pierre Gasly. Off we go. That's it. It leaves out so much juicy stuff. The f- Which is surprising, given... Well, so... Th- you'd think that this would be absolute manna from heaven for them to get into the juicy details of, of Alpine being neglectful in their contract they writing twice in a row. just awful. Yeah, you know, they've lost Alonso because they just dillied around. They, they, they messed him around and didn't give him a contract. And so he just walked to their total shock and surprise. And then Piastri is given what looks like a, something written on the back of a receipt <laughs> in Biro that says, maybe you'll get an F1 drive in a few years time, mate. Yeah. And, you know, that's by them seen to be a binding contract. And he went, hang on a minute. And he and his team looked at it and said, well, we could go and get a better deal somewhere else because this does not you know, this does not constitute a binding contract and you let it lapse. Absolutely. And I'm surprised they don't get into it. Maybe it's just because contract stuff is boring. Um, maybe because, you know, it's it's legal wranglings and mm. that's not visual. Maybe they had a lot to cram in. I don't know. I seem to remember the 22-2 and two season being a bit dull. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, do they do the, uh, like the Danny Rick redemption episode where he has one good race? <laughs> so one thing that they did do with Danny Rick, I don't remember them doing an episode because they're still at this point with, although we're kind of out of the COVID restrictions, the the camera people are still very much embedded with a team. So if they're not in the right place at the right time, they kind of miss some of the stories. Um, and one of my friends said as well, like they didn't talk about George Russell winning in Brazil because, you know, over the course of the season, Mercedes were rubbish and then they won a race. It's like, yeah, but they've got other plans. What they did do with Danny Rick was they kind of did almost a... I'm trying to think of, of something, you know, like um, in, with Big Brother, when somebody left the house, they went, here's your best bits. They gave Danny Rick a signing off leaving montage of his best bits throughout net throughout uh, drive to survive which is pretty good of them and quite apposite given that he is one of the people who made the series such a success through force of personality through that big smile well you say that so when that finished it started auto playing series one episode one and series one episode one starts with about five minutes of danny rick discussing formula one he literally opens the whole thing and it, it kind of it's almost like his arc over the whole five series has kind of gone it's from a fair point i think he's become a superstar because of that show outside of f1 i think it's had a huge impact on how he's mm. 
he was perceived. I think other people who have become, I don't know, more famous through that. It's it's hard to think of other drivers whose profile was was raised as much as his was. Maybe Pierre Gasly. Maybe a bit Lando. You know, the, a little bit Lando, but I, I get the impression that Lando doesn't engage with it very much. And, and this is from me, I will admit, I haven't seen season five. Netflix keep pushing it. It's like I log into Netflix, the first thing on there is the big promo <laughs> for Watch Drive to Survive. And I keep not doing it because A, I know what happens in the season. And I didn't enjoy it very much. B, I really don't want to see smug Christian Horner. C, <laughs> I hear things about the team principles argument thing that makes me go, ugh, that sounds horrible. And Toto doesn't come out of it looking particularly good. And they just look like a bunch of spoiled school children. And I don't care. So you've, you've stumbled acro- across what I think is the real reason not to watch Drive to Survive. It, this series opens with... Um, Matteo Bonotto and Gunter Steiner driving through an Italian vineyard in a Fiat 500, which, frankly, that's a series I want to watch. Penfold and sweary spice. <laughs> exactly. Um, but the thing is, of all of the bits that are worth watching for Drive Survive, if you are an F1 geek like we are, and I'm sorry I'm being presumptuous, some of you might be, all of those bits, as soon as, Net- as Drive Survive comes out, People start sharing it. People start telling you. People start going, look, this is the bit to watch. It's like that uh, Stoffel van Dorn documentary where the whole point of it was, here's a new driver coming to F1 who's going to do amazing things for McLaren. And everyone went, watch the last two episodes. Honda mess up tremendously. But weren't there only three episodes of that because McLaren very quickly realised that the the engine was a big pile of crap and they didn't want to have people filming them have a miserable season. So it was like, it's it's only three episodes long, even though it's meant to be much, much longer because yeah. they canned all the rest of it. And I, but, I don't know. But, I guess the, the question I want to ask you is the one you asked at the start. What's Drive to Survive 4? It's, it's had its desired effect. It has made F1 far more accessible. It's made superstars of virtually every driver on the grid. Mm. Um, it has told the stories that we don't, we didn't get to hear about and made personalities of people we didn't get as much TV time because they're, you know, crawling mm. around the back of the grid in Williams or whatever. Um, and it's, you know... Race attendances are at all-time highs. Interest in the series has never been higher. There's three races in North America, soon to be four. What next? Do they just keep doing it? Or do they draw a line under it and go, yep, job done. Let's go and go do the tennis one now. I think they will keep doing it. And I think what will happen is people like us who saw that first series where it was proper fly on the wall stuff and i know the foley was a bit overdone i know people had complaints but, but it was back unexpected and watch, it was unexpected but it was also unguarded if you watch it now yes that's, you get, that's a better you word. get the comments from people in the garage oh bloody hell he's, he's crashed again oh god it's, is that maldonado yes and it felt like something that you hadn't seen before now lando norris has his own youtube channel mclaren do their own behind the scenes content F1 produce so much behind-the-scenes content. Aston Martin, Williams, Mercedes, they all produce behind-the-scenes stuff. But also, 
everyone is aware of the drive to survive cameras and the drive to survive effect in Absolutely. a way that they just weren't when that first series came out. Absolutely. So now you're not getting unguarded conversations. You're getting what they want you to see. You're getting Christian Horner playing to every camera that's within sight, <laughs> including the CCTV. You're getting Toto Wolf starting to do a little bit of the same. Mm. You get Steiner swearing because everyone seems to love that. You get Penfold doing whatever Ferrari stuff he does in Italian, even though he speaks fluent English. I just find it all a bit cringe now, to borrow a phrase my son has started using. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it's it's I, absolutely I true. Don't I don't know. I, I watched it, and like I say, aside from two scenes in the whole thing, there was very little there, which I either found interesting or new information or enlightening or things that I hadn't seen or things that I didn't already know in better detail. And I suspect when the next series comes around next year, because there will be another series, it's going to go on longer than the Fast and the Furious. I will probably watch it, maybe, and... I would like if, them to make some changes. I would like yes. them to look at what they're doing and go, what can we show you that you haven't seen? Let's have cameras in race control or back at Biggin Hill or something. Show us something. Show us the stewards debating on whether mm. or not to penalise somebody for being forced off. Or show us stuff we haven't seen. Dig into the... It feels like they missed out a lot of stories of the season, which is strange because there wasn't enough on-track action to make it worthwhile following. So it's got to be the off-track stuff. But I so. think about the stuff that's been really interesting in the last few seasons where you saw like Charles Leclerc dealing with the pressure of driving for Ferrari at the Italian Grand Prix. I don't know if that was last season or the season before, but I was... Even though I knew, you know, Ferrari are popular, the Tifosi mm. are crazy, seeing him besieged at every opportunity, you know, trying to get him out of his hotel between the track and, and um, you know, all of the fans constantly everywhere at him. It's quite a surprise to actually see that rather than read about it or have somebody tell yes. you that they were besieged on the way in. I'd like more stuff like that. And I don't know if they're doing that versus... Oh, I don't know. I, it, is the audience I think the now talking mature head enough? Thing, is, I think they. I think you have to assume you, you've got to do a little bit for the people who are new, much like you know Sky do on the their broadcast. Martin mm-hmm. Brundle says, if you're new to F1, then you know we get to use three compounds of tire at the event, blah 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 blah, and then they go into the nerdy stuff as well. And I feel like Drive to Survive ought to start assuming now that people have seen the sport and are a little more familiar. Yep. You still do some intro, but let's not have Will Buxton stating the fucking obvious. <laughs> let's not have other talking heads, you know, telling us a pit stop is where the car pulls in to the thing called the pits <laughs> and they change the wheels, which are these round things at each corner of the car. And if you don't put them all on properly, then the car will not go forwards. Speaking of which, moving on slightly... I did I send you the link? So no, somebody sent me a, a link to one of these Instagram videos comparing a Formula One pit stop from the nineteen fifties to one from like this year, and it's gone from a minute to under two seconds. Did you did I send you the link to the nineties pit stop videos? Yes, I saw the one with the Ferrari yellow tops on. Yes. 
Yes, and it's really fun to watch. It's just even the start of it where they show a Ferrari pit stop, which is not terrible, but not quick. And then the McLaren one, which is significantly more efficient even back then. Um, it's, just, it's really interesting to see. But also it's the full bore launches away from the pit box and the no pit lane speed limiter that's the shocking thing. the crowds. Thing. The crowds in the pits. Yeah, you know, you think, oh man, if they had... If something catches fire or a wheel comes loose, it's going to be bedlam there. So yes, the it is like watching those Catalonia or wherever it was, nineteen eighty five WRC videos where you can't see the track; it's just people, and they're yes. all just moving out of the way at the last second. And Walter Rawls just like, well, you just got to treat them like they're not there, <laughs> <laughs> which terrifies me every time I see it. But. Um, you know, miraculously, they didn't all get mown down by a rogue Audi oh. S1 Quattro, but uh, it's a it's a miracle that, that that's the case. Yes, yes, the pit stops thing I find fascinating because they have got so quick. Anyway, anyway, let's get off F1 uh, because I want to talk about the um, recent news that the Top Gear filming for the latest season has been halted based on the crash that Freddie Flintoff had whilst filming the series. So... First things first, the as, as I understand it, the crash happened after they'd been filming at Dunsfold. It was very cold and Flintoff was in a Morgan three-wheeler. And I don't know the specifics of the crash, but the car rolled, I believe, and he mm. had significant facial injuries. And then everything went very quiet. And then quite recently, there was an article in the BBC that stated that filming's been halted and that Flintoff has significant... It's basically... PTST. Yes. Yes. Like you say, it was some time ago that the BBC, that, this, that the crash happened and there are stories, I think, from November, maybe end of November. And the BBC have taken the decision to halt filming. Some people are saying it's been axed. It's co- currently saying that it is halted and there will be a decision made later in the year. What really caught my attention, and there are various rumours which which we won't go into because I, I all we know that came out of this BBC article because the BBC are great at self-flagellation. They apologised to Freddie Flintoff. They said they were uh, supporting him in his recovery. They have started a um, a health and safety review, which they do whenever there's any sort of incident like this. This this is not a new thing. But the language that they used, the timing of it, the fact that it appears to have had such an influence on somebody who was, I'm guessing, you know, making a living, making a career out of being on camera, can, you know, can he do that? Obviously, our first thoughts with him, we hope that he makes a full recovery. We hope that he has, he can come back and, and do the things that he wants to do and, and live the life that he wants to lead. But the language, the way that the BBC were actively coming out and apologising and laying out all the things they were going to do in the light of this thing to make sure that this sort of thing never happens again. It just, some someone on Twitter, and I can't remember who, and I, I apologise, but they said it smacks of a kind of solicitor's letter landing on a BBC desk and they now are trying to I don't want to say covering their asses because that's not the right thing but there are there are clearly things going on behind the scenes they are having to make statements 
to appease someone or something for some reason. Um, I mean, the BBC aren't aren't always forthcoming with with things like injuries, and and they're not kind of um, what's the word, you know, hyperbolic in these things. And frankly, you know, if somebody's recovering from something like PTSD, then they need, you know, they need their privacy and they need time to recover. But it strikes me, I mean, I, one article I read was going through all the things that he's crashed, you know, even just Freddie's crashed, let alone going back to, you know, Hammond in the jet car and all that sort of thing. I am wondering what is going to happen to Top Gear. And the reason that I'm wondering is because it is becoming such a potentially a liability for the BBC. It's becoming something that is becoming difficult rather than being a sort of headline show. It's still popular. You know, they moved yeah. this this lineup and this sort of era of Top Gear was moved to BBC One, the flagship channel. Mm. So it has worked. It's still popular. It still gets millions of views. It still yeah. gets presumably millions of downloads. And most importantly to the BBC, I suppose, it still makes them millions of pounds a year. True. In licensing, in merch, in whatever, however they, they, they choose to monetize it, it is still a very valuable, extremely recognizable brand. But you're right. It has been the subject of an awful lot of controversy. There have been a lot of accidents. This is not Flintoff's first accident or even second accident on the show. And this is quite serious. This is a lot like Hammond's jet car accident, mm. except with that, that was what put the, stro- the show into the stratosphere and catapulted them into, onto a new level of viewing because everyone loved Hammond as the sort of the, the short, angry daredevil of that era of the show. And it was front page news. I was on the BBC News website refreshing it hourly when it happened to make sure that there wasn't some kind of article that said, I'm terribly sorry, Richard Hammond has passed away as a result of his injuries. We were all overjoyed to see him return to the show and for the show to go on to even greater heights. But this is Top Gear sort of settling into its middle age. And it's still good and it can still produce great, great features. But it's not that required essential Sunday viewing and it's not as big as it once was. Its reach has has diminished somewhat. And I just, I'm not sure this generation of BBC are willing to keep backing it. I feel like, you. I mean, I, I put it in the show notes, should Top Beer be allowed to die at this point? Should, I mean, should it end like this? I really hope not. Yeah. But will it end because of something like this? I kind of feel like it will. I I think you're absolutely right. I think it's that, that was very, very well put. I see a future for it where it becomes safe. So there's always the thing, and if you ever read Richard Porter's excellent um, book and on that bombshell... It was always the Andy Willman thing. It's like, you know, they're the biggest TV show in the world and they still refer to themselves as a pokey motoring show on BBC Two. They're still based in a shitty porter cabin. It was very important to them to keep their feet on the ground and for them to to be the cheeky schoolboys poking fun at the establishment. Yeah. And, And now you've got this point where if a 
carry on with Top Gear, if they do another series, if they do any more features, it's on BBC One. They've gone for that sort of, you know, like you say, it is the most visible they can be. And there's going to be somebody going, oh, is this this going to cause a problem? Because, you know, I'm happy for you to do it. Please, you know, I think that would be an interesting thing. But if there's a crash, it, it can't be on me. If something happens, it can't be on me. You know, can we can we maybe not do the bit where it's on fire? Maybe can we, you know, how about if we did it all in Hyundai i10s? Would that be, you know? <laughs> I don't know whether or not they would um, castrate the show to that extent. But what I do think is that they've now lost their daredevil. Yes. Flintoff had no fear. You've seen the things he did on that show. And I don't think that's going to be the case anymore. I think this is the crash that will, if he returns to the screen at all, he may not be comfortable doing it anymore, but if he returns, it'll be the last kind of thing he does for this show, like that. Mm. And they've lost something there because Flintoff has been a daredevil for as long as he's been on TV. It was just in his makeup. He had no fear by all accounts, but I think by his own account, and certainly people who, who've spent time with him say he's just, he's fearless. Mm. And that's great until something happens to you that proves that you are mortal and that sometimes fear can be healthy. And I just think whatever they had may well have been lost with this accident. I feel for the guy. I really hope he's able to make a physical recovery and a mental recovery. And I would not judge if he said, nope, I'm not coming back. Yeah. Um, I don't know where that leaves Top Gear. I think there is a place for Top Gear, but Actually, what I think there might be a place for is for Top Gear to go back to BBC Two and to diminish slightly and to go back to being the scrappy underdog a little bit. I would love to see it go back to that kind of... You can still do silly things like, can a car run on poo? Which is one of the (laughs) early features that Top Gear did. Very amusingly, Hammond managed to deliver that with a straight face, whereas, you know, obviously I couldn't. But, you know, you can you can have fun and poke fun at cars and motoring and the people who drive them without necessarily everything having to be, let's strap Freddie Flintoff to the roof of a car in a chair and drive it at 90 miles an hour around a private estate and see if he shits himself. Yeah. You know, you you don't need to do that anymore. You can do things like, let's put Richard Hammond in a car and hit it with lightning. Which yep. is scary, but in a different way, in a in a more controlled way. I think it's just possibly got... They're trying to top themselves with everything, and I don't think they can anymore. And I wonder whether or not there is a place for a, a slightly different Top Gear and maybe BBC One isn't it. However, if they do release this series, if they do finish it and release it onto TV, I'm going to be watching it. Yep. And... I do wish Flintoff all the best. And, you know, the other two hosts who clearly are sort of in limbo now, I imagine. I don't know what Chris Harris... If, if Top Gear finishes, what does Chris Harris go on to do next? Is He's not really a broadcaster in the same way that Paddy McGuinness is. Or, so does he go back to being just a regular journalist? Does he go do other things? Who knows? Um, I, I, th- I think Chris Harris has long since become the car nerds star and I, I don't just mean in terms of top gear he built up an audience at autocar took that to the drive took that to his own channel took it to top gear people will follow him people will watch things that he wants that he does you know he has so many involvements in other things be it you know collecting cars and that empire or and i think 
Chris could almost, he, if he wanted, he could probably, you know, if he had an idea, commission his own series. You know, he could do something in some environment, whether it's Haggerty, whether it's, you know, BBC Four or, or whatever. And I, you know, I, I struggle to think of another journalist, and I say journalist specifically, other than Clarkson, Hammond and May, who has the international profile of Chris Harris. And I, the, the guy from Motorsport and uh, Auto, uh, who does all the Nürburgring lap times, has his name has escaped me. But I think even like Jason Kamisa, who is fantastic, I don't think has the same pull as Chris Harris. Not at all. I think he's he's where Chris Harris was 10 years ago. Yeah. You know, he's incredibly famous on the internet um, with all those people who have only just discovered talking about cars just like we have. Mm. Um, but he's he's very, very famous there and he's doing remarkable stuff. Absolutely. We'll, we'll talk about some of the recent stuff Haggerty have been putting out with him uh, later on the podcast, but he's not... He's not TV famous. No. And and he has an audience that will follow, but I don't think it's quite as big as Harris's audience. But anyway, um, we'll have to see what happens. We'll report back when we hear mm. something else, but you'll probably have read it on BBC News before then anyway. Uh, let's whiz through some of the stuff we've been watching. I have recently bought a new car. Ooh. And it's uh, an old, quite scruffy Porsche Cayman. And... Therefore, I have been watching an absolute shit ton of DIY how-tos on how to fix all the things that are wrong with it. Like, how do you change the discs and pads on a Cayman S? Uh, it turns out that's actually quite easy, although everything is, is, is corroded on my car. One of the things I have discovered is that all the people who make these how-tos live in California in the US, <laughs> where nothing corrodes and everything is sunny and you can always work out on your driveway where you've got tons of space and it's nice and warm and you can do it in a t-shirt. Whereas in the UK, it's really cold and it's rainy and we put salt on the roads and everything is rusty underneath your car yep. or at least slightly corroded and covered in gack. And so where they go, yes, just simply tap this out. You know, you're there for half an hour with a hammer going, why won't you come apart? <laughs> so I've watched a ton of that on, on YouTube. Uh, I've watched a load of... Um, not that I don't watch this anyway, but a load of Ammo NYC detailing videos specifically on how to rescue absolutely fucked black paint uh, because that's what I have to deal with. Or um, um, did you see the, the, the latest Fiat 124, which basically was a rolling mouse toilet? Yes, I did. It's disgusting. Fortunately, my car's interior is not full of mouse droppings. It's actually pretty nice. It's just the exterior that is a, a disaster zone of scratches and so on. Um, one thing I have also been watching uh, recently, and I don't know if this is the algorithm serving it up to me. I think it's because they did a crossover, but I've been watching Adam LZ, who I think I mentioned in passing when we talked about Matt Armstrong rebuilding his GT3. Which is a great and series. I, which is a good series. Um, and I made jokes about how I can't do anything but look at his moustache when he's on screen. <laughs> However, the uh, YouTube algorithm has served me up a bunch of Adam LZ videos and he's done a bunch of crossover stuff quite recently with Matt Mormon from Obsessed Garage because they know one another ah. and I think he's uh, Matt Mormon's a teeny bit like a, a cool uncle figure who who um 
sort of tells Adam LZ what to do and how to fix his car and what he should be doing. And, and I'm really digging that stuff. It's because it, they've got a really fun vibe together, slightly hyperactive teenager and the grumpy old man type <laughs> thing going on. And I've been watching that and I've been watching like a bunch of Adam LZ videos going, trying to figure out who he is and, and what he does and, and what his world is like. And he's got this gigantic 30 acre compound with about 30,000 buildings on it. Um, <laughs> and this insane car collection. And, and he, he appears to be running an empire from in there I, I found that stuff quite fascinating so I, I would recommend checking some of those out I'd always go Obsessed Garage if you are into cars and you have OCD and you like things to be clean and, and neat and fixed and quote unquote dialed in which I do um, I've been watching so much of that because I have this slightly basket case came in that I'm trying to fix and the way that Matt Mormon fixes cars where he's like, yeah, this bit's all scratched and it could polish it, but I'm just going to get a new one. Um, kind of appeals to me, except I don't have his budget. So I'm looking at it going, can I find one on eBay that is slightly less fucked than mine? <laughs> Isn't it Matt Mormon who's like, I buy new cars because I don't want anyone to have ever sat in the seat. Yes, yes. And, and you know, I, I would love to be like that i'm fortunately i'm not medically diagnosed as ocd you know i can turn this stuff off to a certain degree whereas he clearly can't it is a condition mm. but uh, i've very much been enjoying that um one thing i will call out actually is i watched the first round of the world endurance championship on eurosport because i haven't forked out for the the subscription on my ipad for the the app uh but eurosport was showing it and i happen to have that in my sky package at the moment so i watched it on there and as ever i'm always like oh it's jethro on my telly <laughs> because jethro bovingdon does a bunch of like pit interviews and team interviews on there it's really fun seeing him you know being on tv doing tv things and um i quite enjoyed watching that coverage sort of on and off throughout the, the Sebring race they opened it up with. And yeah. one thing I have noticed is that that is now available on YouTube, mm. like the whole race. Uh, so we'll get to that later on, Ooh. but I've really been enjoying that. Um, finally, before we move on to what you've been watching, uh, I want to mention, as we did earlier on, Jason Kamisa and Haggerty have been crushing it recently with the stuff they've released. Um, there's a wonderful piece on the BMW M1 supercar yes. that uh, Jason Kamisa put together which is a great telling of the story of how the BMW M1 came to be and why it was a disastrous failure, but also why <laughs> it's such a great car. That's a brilliant piece and shows it's it's all Camisa's personality. It's it's so specific to him and how he tells stories. It's wonderful. No one's doing it like him right now. Uh, but there's also something that uh, was sent to me by a friend of the show, Chris Frew, which is, uh, I think it turned up in my feed, but I just kind of missed it, which is a drag race between lots of cars and the new um, Corvette E-Ray. So it's the Corvette right. E-Ray versus the Ferrari F8 Tributo and the Lamborghini um one of the Hurricanes, and they've also got the, the, the Corvette Z06, the 2023 one. So the 2024 Corvette E-Ray um, racing against the 2023 Corvette Z06 plus the Lambo and the Ferrari. It's a wonderful drag race. Now, these I think I've talked about the way Haggerty and Jason Camisa do these drag races where they do a bit where they somehow, and I've never figured out quite how they do it. It's so cleverly done where they basically have it running in super slow-mo as the cars cross the line and he kind of jumps out from behind one of them yes. and talks about the drag race as the car is like crawling along the line at one mile an hour. I've no idea how they do it. It's so visually entertaining, but it's a really interesting look at how a hybrid 
behaves in a sports car context certainly in the context of drag races and so on and we all know evs are like super fast off the line and they're, they're brilliant at drag racing and so on but it's a really interesting look at how two cars from the same manufacturer compare to one another and i really really enjoyed that plus you know these 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 Jason Camisa drag races are so beautifully filmed and brilliantly put together. All of them are worth a watch. But this this one was particularly interesting because of the nature of the car that they're comparing, which has electric motors at the front and, you know, a, a certain amount of horsepower extra and torque fill, blah, 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 blah. It's really good. So definitely check that out. What have you been watching? One thing I will just say about Jason Camisa stuff is that, and I mean this as a compliment, Every single bit of it, whenever you watch one of his videos, every single aspect from the writing, the cinematography, the the way that it's set up, the way that it's lit, everything is better than it needs to be. Like, it could be so much more of just a talking head, but he does it so well. And the fact that, I, you know, he's one of those people, and it's like Henry, maybe we need to add him onto like our kind of wall of fame, is we just want to go... Why isn't everybody watching this? It's brilliant. Um, I'm going to be a bit briefer. Um, there's two things I really want to call out. One that came out today was Red Bull Racing's Aussie Adventure. So if you oh, want to this, I haven't watched it yet. It's you remember the um, uh, it's the New York to Miami film they did. Oh, the thing with Sergio Perez. Yes, that won it's, awards and stuff. It's kind of like that. Um, it does point out that the Red Bull kind of race engineering team cannot act to save their lives. But on the upside, Christian Horner isn't in it. Um, basically, <laughs> That's always a good thing. Yes. So this is um, Danny Rick basically driving to Melbourne via Mount Panorama. And he did laps with Shane, Giz- Shane Van Gisberg. Yeah, um, Shane Van Ma- Gisbergen. That's the one. Um so like the footage from that is in there and, and, and all this other stuff. Red Bull just do this stuff so well. They tie it in with Tag Heuer. It has it has comedy, it has humour, it has personality, it has great visuals, it has interesting stuff. It's it's worth a watch. It's probably going to win more awards. Um the what the one that I did so This want is to why call... they hired Danny Rick. <laughs> they didn't actually yes. want a third driver or a reserve. They were like, no, man, you're PR gold. <laughs> um, the other thing that I do want to call out is uh, Misha Chirudin, who I know I keep mentioning and, and who helped us out in the last episode, did an interesting video about how long it takes them to film and edit one of their in-car videos. So if you watch his channel, he does a lot, particularly over the winter, of, of kind of onboard um, laps driving various cars actually having having him sort of go through and say this is how we rig the car this is how many cameras we have this is how much footage we gather they sometimes do 10 of those in a day blows my mind but then they also get into you know he edits one of the videos not quite in real time but it's like here's how I import the footage. Now I'm going to choose this. Okay, now I'm going to move this up here. Oh, now I've got to do a caption, so I'll do that. Now I'll export it. There, We all kind of go, you know, all nod sage. Oh, yes, there's a lot of work goes into YouTube videos. There really is. And to have somebody break, break it down quite so clearly for something that is... I think I've been guilty in the past of going, well, it's an onboard. 
His stuff is not though now. Maybe maybe it used to be, but he's taken a whole step up over the he last really couple has. of years in terms of the 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 amount of material he's putting out, but also the quality of it, um, both technically and visually. And yeah, when you see these um, onboards, quite often you've got a foot cam, you've got a, a, a dash cam, you've got at least one angle looking towards him or the passenger as they're driving. Uh, that's there's a lot to put together and. Yep. He works hard. He works very, very hard. And, you know, I've I've watched... I don't always watch every one of his videos, but I do subscribe to him and I pick up the stuff where I'm interested to see the car. Um, or he's written a particularly clickbaity title that just <laughs> suckers me in. There is a limit to how many laps of the Nürburgring I want to watch, but he makes it entertaining and... Mm. Uh, the the stuff he clips out and sticks on his socials can be quite interesting too. So yeah, I, I definitely recommend if you don't um, check out Misha Chirudin, then then you really should because he's doing some great stuff. And it's not all about Apex and it's not all about you know ring taxis and all that kind of thing. It's it's there's a lot of laps in a lot of people's cars that are maybe unusual or interesting in some way. It's not all GT3 MRs. It's becoming more editorial. I think the fact that he does. You know, he's done behind the scenes at Mantai. He's done behind the scenes at KW. He does just lots of different bits of stuff that's around there. It, it is definitely worth watching. Um, speaking of people who are worth watching, what has Henry Catchpole been up to this week? And we have quite the choice because there's been a lot uh, he's been doing recently. With there the is, Haggerty. but you, we've picked... We've picked the right one, I think, is his review of the Ferrari Pura Sangue, which is Ferrari's first four-door production car. These all dropped on the internet, like all at the same time, the embargo lifted and every channel worth its salt that was invited on the launch had a video. (laughs) But Henry's was by far and away the best. And I include people like Top Gear in that, Harry Metcalf. They all tried and they all fell a very long way short. And it was such an illustration of how Henry and the people he he works with, or the, the way he's able to tell a story with a car and mm. what, in what I imagine is an incredibly short amount of time, makes yeah. something that is visually arresting, tells a story, tells you about the car but in a way that is uniquely Henry. And I thought this was an amazing piece of work. I'd love to see this film up for the the, the Motor Film Awards because yes. I think it's a remarkable piece of work. And if you haven't seen it, please go and see it. I don't know, maybe he'll top it with something else or there'll be something else that comes along. But I thought this was given everything dropped at once. And that was the thing for me is my feed was suddenly like, Ferrari, 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 pure sangue. And... <laughs> You know, other people have a different take on it. Harry has his take on it, which is kind of based more on the would I buy one because maybe he'd be in a position to, he might actually use it for what it's intended for. But it just fell a little short for me in the way it didn't tell the story of the car in the same way. It was far more like the kind of reviews he does out of his shed where he climbs in it and then drives off and down the road and talks about all of its stuff. I This was such a great piece of, a great piece of work. Mm. I, I think Harry's review... Of all the ones I saw, this is going to sound like a like damning with faint praise, and it's, it's not meant like it. Harry's review was a very Harry Metcalf review, and he could have been reviewing anything in that style, but it's what he does very, very well. What struck me with Henry's was the way that he made it personal, the story, the writing, the concept, plus 
it was very well filmed. It's very well edited. But there was just a bit more heart to it. It wasn't just, we're going to look at the new car. It was... Yeah, he was able to give you a way into it that was personal rather than here is some new shiny. Um, <laughs> and that's that's what hooks you in. That's what makes his stuff a cut above the rest in the same way. Okay. He's working with Haggerty, uh, much like Kamisa, but like you, like you said there, it's absolutely true. These are way better than they have to be. Mm. Um, the quality, the scripting is, it's just, it's a step up from, you know, they could get away with half-assing it, although they never would. No. And, and this is, this was so good. So it, there's a lot of car content out there. Haggerty put a lot of stuff out and, and Henry's done a bunch of pieces since we were last on, but this was such a great review of a new car. And, you know, not always new cars are, are, aren't always the most interesting because they're super expensive and um, new cars at the moment are in a funny time where we're sort of <laughs> aiming towards an EV future, maybe. Um, and the only interesting cars that are coming out all cost six figures and up mm. or, or are maybe they're cheap, but they're all sold out. I'm looking at you, GT86. <laughs> GR86. GR, GR86, sorry. So it can be hard to watch these reviews and feel invested or interested in any way, which is why having that hook to get you in, despite the fact this car costs £400,000 with some options on it, which is an insane amount of money mm. that, that would buy you a very nice house in lots of parts of the country. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm, I'm unlikely to see one of these, let alone ride in one or drive one. But Henry makes me care about the car in a way that nobody else did. And that's a remarkable achievement. Definitely. So, yes, top marks for what has Henry Catchpole been up to this week? No, what, this month, this this quarter, however <laughs> you want to talk about it. Um, YouTube Picks of the Week, what have you decided to, to call out here? So, I have, I have a favourite channel, which I haven't discussed here because it doesn't usually relate to cars. However, there's a channel called Jetlag the Game, and they do a number of these series where you've got two teams of two and they have to do something. So they did one game where they did play they played um Connect 4 with you, with the 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 states of the US. They raced each other to try and circumv- uh, circumnavigate the world fastest. The new series that they've come out with is they have turned New Zealand into a board game. So there's two teams, they're one has a BMW Z3, the other has a, a Range Rover of probably 20 years vintage. And because New Zealand is very long and narrow, there are only so many roads, main roads, you can take down the islands. And what they've done is essentially kind of turned it into like, um, if anybody ever plays board games has played Ticket to Ride, that you have to basically earn the next bit of road. So where you come to a challenge, and once you complete the challenge, you get to go on to the next challenge. And once you get to that, and the road forks, and then it joins. And where it forks, one team might go one way, one team might go the other. Where the challenges are different down both sides. However, they might also follow the other car, because once one team does the challenge, both of them can then use the road. They've done a number of these, and they've got the game mechanics really well down. But it's really fun 
because certainly when I'm watching it, I kind of go, well, what would you do? Would you go left? Would you go right? Maybe, you know, should they should they use a roadblock here? What happens if, if they don't do this challenge? All of these things, you start getting invested in the game mechanics. And the other series, the other series have the same sort of draw. If you like trains, there's one where they played tag across Europe, which was all based on trains. And you start... You know I like trains. I know you like trains. <laughs> and it was kind of like, you know, they were like, oh, well, I, I think they've taken this train to, to you know, um, this this train to Stuttgart. Well, if we get this one, then maybe we'll be on the same line. And then if they get off, then we can like bypass them. And then we'll be waiting for them at the next station, all this sort of thing. It's incredible fun. It's one of the few series, because they drop one a week, I wake up on a Wednesday and kind of go, oh, it's Jet Lag the Game Day. It's Ted Lasso, Jet Lag the Game. And on BBC in the UK, Race Across the World, which is a similar sort of thing, doesn't involve cars. Well, it kind of involves cars. But Jet Lag the Game, if you like that I've sort of thing. I've never even heard of this channel, so I'm going to have to give it a look it, um, yeah. and, and check this out. The idea sounds complicated but interesting. And I, I, I've kind of... I've stalled or plateaued or whatever it is on on youtube channels i haven't found anything particularly new recently other than you know obviously you get into one car youtuber and that leads you to another car youtuber and so on but it's all the same kind of shit um and something different would be quite nice so i i'm gonna i'm gonna check this out um i have chosen again this is slightly not it's car related but it's not someone who is primarily a car YouTuber. This is a YouTuber called Matt Jones, who is most well known for being a Red Bull sponsored biking athlete. He does a lot of slope style, which is you know jumping and tricks and going upside down and waving your arms around and stuff. And he is a prolific YouTuber and a bit of a mm. car nut. He's had some decent metal in the past. He's had 911 GT3s. He's had Lamborghinis. Um, but more recently, he's got an aerial nomad. And he's just moved on to living on a farm, which has quite a bit of land. And so he decided, well, I have an aerial nomad and I have some dirt and I'm very good at building dirt jumps for bikes. So why don't I try and build a dirt jump for my car? And the video that comes out is kind of terrifying watching him jump this this what, 80 grand's worth yep. of, of aerial nomad and thinking, oh my God, what happens if this goes wrong? You know, you, you have posh shocks on this thing, but you're not a trophy truck. <laughs> so... I watch this with a degree of trepidation, but, you know, all ends well. And there is some remarkable footage of aerial nomads being treated as not many other aerial owners will, I suspect. Um, So full credit to Matt Jones for sending it in all the ways. It's worth a watch. Somebody actually jumping their aerial nomad and driving it off-road properly. Uh, That's really, really worth a watch. And I I have a, a channel mention, which I've mentioned earlier on, the FIA... WEC channel on YouTube is worth a watch because they do appear to be instantly uploading full replays of races. So if you have nine hours to spare and you want to watch the um, 12, or was it nine? It wasn't the nine hours of Sebring. It's the thousand kilometers of Sebring. Yeah. Then you can on their YouTube channel, watch the entire race, nine hours worth of broadcast, which they didn't used to do. They didn't used to put the whole race up so quickly. They used to put like rubbish 56 minute race edits, which took half an hour before them to actually show the race. <laughs> so full credit to the FIA WC. They're putting, at least for this first race, that's already on their YouTube channel. And it's the kind of thing where if you're into this kind of thing, you could just stick this up in a little window 
in your computer yeah. while you're doing some work of an evening or in the day even, just don't tell your boss, and just kind of <laughs> listen along to the commentary. It's 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 kind of soothing. Um, spoiler alert, it's not the best race in the world in terms of action up at the front, but it is sports car action, and there's bound to be more overtaking in this than there will be in a season of Formula <laughs> One. So could be worth checking out there. And with that, I think that brings us to the end of this episode of... The Automovie Podcast. I'd like to ask you all to subscribe and rate the podcast and leave us comments and send us good vibes at, uh, what's, what are we on Twitter? At Automovie Pod. At Automovie Pod on Twitter and Instagram. We do have an Instagram account. Probably should do something with that. Comments at automoviepodcast.com as well. Uh, we should probably look into this Mastodon thing, which turns out is not some kind of prehistoric animal, but is also a social network that more and more people are using. <laughs> so if you don't like Melon Husk and his awful Twitterness, then, you know, we'll, we'll see if we can put some kind of presence on the other social networks. But yes, do send us your thoughts and opinions. Um, if you've seen the Fast 10 trailer and you found the comments as funny as I do, then please let me know your favourite one. And in the meantime, I think we're all off to go and figure out how the fuck Aquaman ended up in the Fast <laughs> Universe. Until next time, everyone. Bye.